Pray with me. Lord, we're here trembling before your word again, and I'm, I'm so aware right now, Lord, that human words are so inadequate to express the glorious truth that is spoken of, that we just read in these verses, Lord. We can hear the words, but for our eyes, the eyes of our heart to see this truth to taste its sweetness, to sense its majesty. Lord, for that, we really, really need you. And so, Lord, would you please be here? Would you please, please, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see the, the wonderful, truly full of wonder truths here in, in this part of your word that we're, we're so privileged to get to see and to hear together this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask you to empower me to speak and, and each one of us here to hear with faith. And I pray that our hearts would be warmed to love the Lord Jesus Christ who has bought his people and to love his people who have been bought by him and to live the holy lives that he died to purchase. God, please, we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Last week, we began a discussion on fear as Peter instructs us on how to live in light of the grace of God which is what he's been doing since verse 13 that we, we started our passage here together on. In verse 17, he told us that if we call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And we saw last week that conduct yourselves with fear is the main command in this passage. And Peter gives this command, and then he supports it with two reasons. And the first reason is that God, our Father, is also our judge. That's what we saw last week. If, we, if you call on him as Father who judges impartially, knowing that God is going to evaluate us impartially based on what we've done and how we've lived, knowing that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, then we're to live our lives with a sense of holy fear. Like we saw last week, not a fear that makes us want to run from God, but a, a proper fear of what will happen if we do spend our lives running away from him. And if you weren't here last week, if the thought of, of God judging Christians sounds like heresy to you, I encourage you to, to go on, on our website. You can read or listen to last week's message. And, and please feel free to reach out with any questions that, that you might have. This is, this is really important for us to understand. Now today as we turn to verse 18, what, what, we're, what we're meeting here is Peter's second reason for us to conduct ourselves with fear. So we've heard last week, because God, the impartial judge, is our father, and, and or our Father is the impartial judge. And this week, 
The second reason for why we would conduct ourselves with fear, why we would live with a sense of holy fear, is connected to, rooted in, the death of Jesus. And it starts in verse 18 here, knowing, so conduct yourselves with fear, knowing, so if you know this, you're going to do this, okay? So you see this. So conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's, that's our, our passage today. Knowing that you were ransomed are the opening words there in verse 18. And, and so much centers on this word for ransom. The word ransom sometimes is translated as redeem in the Bible. And, and, and there, it's the similar idea here that is speaking about the price that was paid for us by Jesus on the cross. There's a rich Old Testament background to this word. Sometimes people explain this word by pointing to the, the slave market, which is, is a background for this word. Slaves would be put up on the slave market and there was a price and they could be set free or purchased at that price and they'd be ransomed or redeemed. The, the, the Old Testament background here has to do with Israel and their freedom from slavery in Egypt. God is repeatedly told to be their redeemer. He redeemed or ransomed, same, same kind of idea, from slavery in, in Egypt. And then, and then this word, it continues on through Israel's history, again, to speak about slaves being set free, redeemed, or even a piece of land that, that would be paid for so that it wouldn't be lost to a, to a family. So, so the idea has to do with the price that is paid to, to make something yours or to set something free. And, and Peter here reminds his readers that they've been ransomed with the blood of Jesus. They've been bought and paid for. And that is a reason for them to live in holy fear. It's a very similar point to the one that the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, speaking about how important it is for them to walk in sexual purity, he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. And similarly for Peter, the fact that we've been ransomed is a reason for us to conduct ourselves with holy fear, to live, to live holy lives with an appropriate trembling before the one who, who died for us. Now that's a very simple way of, of describing the big picture here, but th there is a big picture here. There are some absolutely massive ideas in these verses here. And we want to do our best to, to get inside of them and to let them get inside of us. And so we're going to look at four of these really key points here that are implied by or help us understand these words that Peter's given us here, understanding the redemption of Jesus. And here's the first key idea that we see in these verses here. Christ's redemption was an effective redemption. You were ransomed, Peter says. Here's what we mean by Christ's redemption being effective. 
Jesus's death on the cross did not just create the possibility of us to be ransomed, but it actually ransomed us. It didn't create the possibility of us being saved, it actually saved us. Peter's point here, you have been ransomed, is pointing to the truth that the price that Jesus paid for his people on the cross actually accomplished something. It didn't just make us savable. Now, what do I mean by make us savable? See, what I'm talking about here is an idea that, that many Christians believe, and, and, and I think many believe without knowing that they believe it. That, that was my, my case, at least. And it's the idea that Jesus died for every human in history in the same way. So he died for you, and he died for Adolf Hitler in the same way with the same intention. And the intention was to make it possible for you to be saved. And the only difference between you and Hitler is that you responded to Jesus and Hitler didn't. So, so we can think of it this way. It's as if we were drowning and the death of Jesus on the cross was like a life preserver thrown out to us. And now we have the possibility of being saved. But whether or not we are saved depends on what we do, whether we grab onto the life preserver or not. The ball's in our court. And so there's many people who believe that's what the death of Jesus did. It opened up the possibility of salvation, but it left the ball in our court. Whether we're saved is up to us, and it's our response, not Jesus' death, that makes the difference between heaven and hell. It's a common idea. I no longer believe this to be true because I, I no longer see this truth in the Bible. I don't think the Bible teaches that Jesus simply died to make people savable. I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus died to actually save his people. And we see it right here in these words, you have been ransomed. Ransomed, redeemed. If someone is a slave and you ransom them, they're free. Price has been paid. That old slave owner doesn't own them anymore. They're free. And in the same way, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price to buy a specific group of people and to make them his own. In John 6, Jesus tells us that he came with a mission to save his chosen people. And he says this in John 6, 37 to 39. All that the Father gives me. So that's the, that's the group of people. There's a group of people that the Father gives him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So you see there, he's got a mission. There's a people given to, to, to the son from the father, and he's come down to 
have them make sure they come to him, that he keeps them, and that he will raise them up on the last day. Full and final salvation. A people chosen before the foundation of the world, given to the Son, and Jesus came to save them. And a few chapters later, in John chapter 10, Jesus speaks about these people, referring to them as his sheep. When he says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And we know that this sheep are a particular group of people that he died for in a particular way because just a few verses later, he says to the Pharisees, you do not believe, this is verse 26 of John 10, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. (laughs) Where's the eternal life come from? Jesus gives it to his sheep and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So again, there's this idea of Jesus saving his people by dying for them, laying his life down for his sheep in in an effective way that effectively results in their eternal final salvation. And scripture after scripture after scripture tells us this same truth that Jesus died for his people in a particular way and that his death actually saved them. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25, Titus 2.14, Jesus, quote, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What did the death of Jesus on the cross do? It bought a people for him. It redeemed them from lawlessness and it purified them and it made them zealous for good works. That's what the death of Jesus did. Ephesians 2.14, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. See, Jesus is actually doing something with his blood, with his death. Colossians 1, 19 to 20 says, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, quote, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Not just the possibility of peace, not just the option of peace, but effectually making peace through his blood on the cross. So we're seeing here this pattern, and it's just it's there all over the place. If we, if we have eyes to see it, is that Jesus' blood didn't just make things possible. It actually did something. It brought us near. It actually made us one. It actually made peace. It actually freed us from lawlessness. It actually purified us. It actually caused us to belong to him. It actually made us zealous for good works. Jesus bought us on the cross. His death saved his people. And I believe with all my heart, that is what the scriptures teach. Now, please don't hear me incorrectly here. I also believe that there is a sense in which we can say, we we can say that Jesus died for everybody. I don't think these two things are 
uh, a big phrase here, mutually exclusive. In other words, I think, I think they can both be true. I believe on, on, the, on the, the basis of other verses that we could look at, that we can say the death of Jesus was enough to pay for the sins of the whole world. And we could say to any person anywhere, if you believe, you will be saved. So, so, so please, I'm not denying that. I believe that is just as biblical. So I'm not saying less than that Jesus died for everybody, but I'm saying there's more than that. I'm saying there's gloriously more than that. I'm saying there's this glorious, beautiful truth that while the death of Jesus was enough for the whole world, it was effective for his people, his sheep, his bride, his church, the people chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world and given to Christ to redeem. Now you might, might be wondering here, like, well, if, if Jesus' death did all of this, well, what about our response? Like, don't we need to believe in order to be saved? Yes, salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But even that response of faith is something that Jesus gives us. Ephesians 2.8 says that our faith itself is a part of the gift of God so that no one can boast, right? By grace you have been saved through faith and this, which includes the faith. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Down in verse 21, which, which by the way, next week Josh is gonna be preaching on verses 20 and 21, and, and verse 21 says that through him we are believers in God. We're, it's through Jesus that we are even able to believe in God. So even our response of faith all comes back to the work of Jesus. He ransomed us. His death effectively, effectually saved his people. The blood of Jesus did not just create new possibilities, it created new realities. Jesus is mighty to save. I just wanna, I just wanna end there because I just think this is beautiful that we have a savior who doesn't just create options, but he saves his people. Hallelujah, what a savior. And one of those new realities that he created with his death is redemption from sin. And this is their second point here, redemption from sin. Not just redemption from punishment, and praise God for that. Not just redemption from hell, and praise God for that but redemption from sin itself. Now, we don't want to downplay redemption from punishment, redemption from hell. I mean, praise God that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied as we sing, and, and it's, it is beautiful, and we're not saying less than that, but we are here saying that there's more than that. By satisfying the demands of justice, Jesus also redeemed us from the presence of sin itself, not just God's wrath. But what, what does Peter say here? That you were ransomed from what? What's it say? The futile ways inherited from your forefathers. We already saw this in Titus 2.14 which says Jesus redeemed us from what? Lawlessness. 
We heard it in Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Here's the intention of Jesus' death on the cross, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus was dying for. He didn't only die to purchase our forgiveness. Praise God that he did that or none of this would, would happen, right? But he also purchased our holiness. He bought and paid for our transformation from futile conduct to holy conduct. Now this transformation practically happens through the Spirit. And, and this is all comes from Jesus' death. He died, rose again, having made us righteous in our status, right? having justified us, and ascended to the Father's right hand. He poured out his Spirit who, who causes us to be born again and causes us to hunger and thirst for righteousness from the inside out. Like we've seen multiple times over the last few weeks, God's new covenant born again people want to do what he wants. And that is, a, that is how this works. That's how we are transformed through the spirit. And this is why Christians must live in holy fear because this freedom from loving sin, this freedom to want to please God is one of the key things that Jesus died for. We can't be casual about sin by living in the things that Jesus died to save us from. And actually, here's, here's the thing. If Jesus died to ransom us from sin, from futile ways, conduct is another word. It's the same word for conduct. Be, be holy in all your conduct, your ransom, futile ways, ways and conduct in, in the original language are the exact same word. If we keep on living in our sinful conduct, we actually prove that we haven't been ransomed. See, that this is why Jesus in Matthew 5 can say, Gouge out, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And then he threatens us with hell. Has that confused you ever? Like, so it would be better to go through life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. And he's not teaching salvation by works. This isn't about salvation by works. This is about Jesus getting what he died for. What did Jesus die for? He died so that through the Spirit he would create a people who hate sin and are willing to poke out their eye if that's what it takes. You know, like we saw, we can't, it's not, our eyes won't fix it. It's our heart, right? Which is part of the whole point. So, so hear this again. These are not things we do to get saved. These are the things Jesus did when he saved us. Blood-bought, spirit-applied results of salvation is our freedom from sin. Jesus ransomed us from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. Now that last 
phrase brings us to our third point this morning, a redemption from the ways of our forefathers. Because Peter talks about Jesus redeeming us from sin, and he could word this in different ways, right? Paul says he ransomed us from lawlessness. He could leave it there. Peter doesn't just say Jesus ransomed you from futile ways. He says he ransomed you from, verse 18, the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. This, this kind of language would have been absolutely, absolutely shocking to, to, the, to the people who first would have read these words, unless they'd heard it before. But this type of language would have been absolutely shocking to people living in the first century. Because the language that Peter uses here, if we were to just take the phrase, ways inherited from your forefathers. So take off the word futile. See there in verse 18, it says, ways inherited from your forefathers. Ways inherited from our forefathers in the ancient world is roughly about the same as the word that we might use, a word that we might use like heritage. We could almost put this word in here. Ways inherited from your forefathers, basically heritage. And just like our word heritage, in the ancient world, this concept of the, of the ancestral ways that you inherited from your forefathers was a very positive word. This was not a bad word to them, just like our word for heritage. You say heritage, oh, what kind of heritage do you have? Let's talk. Heritage is positive. Ways inherited from your forefathers, heritage, very positive. The, the ancestral ways that were passed on from generation to generation were actually thought in, in, in the ancient world to be the very cornerstone of, of what made society work. These were some of the most important values. If, if you were to go back and do a study on what did ancient people value? Ancestral ways, heritage. Th these, were, these were key values to them. This was everything to them. Your ancestral ways were to be treasured and celebrated. And Peter just called them futile. Jesus came to ransom you from your futile heritage, is what he says. Empty, worthless, is what that word futile points to. Jesus died to save you from this. Now, it, this language is so shocking that it would be tempting to, to say, well, Peter is simply talking about their religious beliefs. You know, like if they worshipped at the idol temples and that kind of stuff. But that's not what Peter's saying. He doesn't say futile beliefs. Jesus died, Jesus ransomed you from your futile beliefs. He says futile ways. Again, like we've seen, the word ways, same as the word for conduct. This is how you act, what you do, the way you go about life. So in other words, we got to get this. The whole way of life that they had received from their ancestors, the whole package was empty and futile, and Jesus died to ransom them from it. He ransomed them from it, actually. That's what he did. This is shocking in the first century. This is shocking in the 21st century. We've been taught to respect Heritage, our heritage, other people's heritage. Missionaries get taught this. Respecting other people's heritage 
is just in the culture that we drink. And Peter just walks into the room and says, no, your heritage is, is, is futile, fruitless, empty. Jesus ransomed you from it, actually. And we want to make sure we really understand what Peter's talking about here. This is important. I told you there's some massive ideas here. Is Peter really talking about our whole heritage, the, the completeness of our human culture? Did Jesus ransom us from every single thing we inherited from our forefathers? Did Jesus ransom you from your grandma's bread recipe, for example? And when you became a Christian, you have to leave that behind because he ransomed you from your heritage. Don't be too quick to say, oh, of course not. We do this all the time. When we hear, come across something radical in the Bible, we go, oh, I don't think it means that. If, if this is what the Bible says, then we're going to go with it, right? We don't negotiate with God. If this is what it means, then, then we're going we're gonna to submit to that. But I don't think that's what it means. Based on Scripture, I don't think Peter is saying that Jesus ransomed us from every last aspect of human culture. Here's, here's one reason why I say that. Revelation 7, 9. Revelation 7, 9, the Apostle John's getting a vision of heaven And he says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Language is something we inherited from our forefathers. And it's there in heaven. Differences between tribes and peoples are still visible in heaven. It's interesting, everyone's wearing the same clothes, but John can tell whether it's different tones of skin, different accents, different ways of behaving, that there's different cultures here, different peoples, tribes. So what we see here is that Jesus has not completely erased our cultural differences. Jesus has not completely erased our heritage because some of our heritage, at the very least language, is going to be there in heaven. So here's here's what we can say at the very least, is that Jesus ransomed us from all of the parts of our culture that are at odds with his teaching. We can say that for sure. Every, any last part of our culture that's at odds with his teaching and the teaching of scripture is what, is what he died to ransom us from. But don't be too quick to go, oh good, because maybe there's more parts of our culture that are at odds with his teaching than we think. So maybe this isn't talking about your grandma's bread recipe. Maybe it's pointing to the prideful thought that your grandma's bread recipe makes you superior to other people. And don't laugh. One of the most evil parts of even the best cultures is cultural pride. The the thought and the feeling that your culture and your heritage makes you superior to other people. And and Christians aren't immune to this. If If you grew up in a Christian home, if you come from a lineage of Christians, you have probably felt the temptation 
to believe that your Christian heritage is kind of like a VIP pass that lets you kind of get to the front of the line, a little bit closer to God than other people. And Peter's words make us realize something really important here. The best parts of our heritage don't get us any closer to God than anybody else. Even, just think about the best parts of, of, of human culture. You're, a culture can have the best language, the best music, the best food, the best customs, and without Jesus, those people are headed for the same hell as people with not good customs, not good food, etc., etc. So without Jesus, the best culture, the best heritage is futile. This is why Paul, in Philippians 3, could, could list out his Hebrew heritage and say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. His, his cultural heritage was not just second place to Jesus. It was loss for the sake of Christ. And this is why, why Paul, when he, he was a missionary, repeatedly set his heritage and his cultural preferences aside. And he said, I, I became all things to all people, 1 Corinthians 9.22. This is why Peter could even tell new Christians to do things that really challenge their culture like telling slaves and masters and men and women to wait for each other and to have communion together. Slaves and, not slaves and, and, and slave owners did not eat meals together in the first century. This was totally against their culture. And Paul says, no, you're new in Christ. Who cares about your culture? This, your culture's running into God's word. Guess what goes? I think about missions again, because it's one of the things I've studied in missions, and, and, and this kind of thing gets so often missed, where, where we missionaries are taught to bend over backwards, to adapt to even the wrong parts of people's culture, and maybe in 30 years they'll be mature enough to, to get over this. This is not how the authors of Scripture write. This is why by Paul could tell the Romans, in Romans 14, that if eating meat causes your brother to stumble, then stop it. What do you mean? I'm supposed to not have freedom? Because Yes, exactly. Guy, eating meat and drinking wine were some of the most celebrated parts of cultural festivities in those days. And Paul says, set them aside for the sake of Christian love. Your culture, your heritage is not more important than loving your brothers and sisters. And Peter himself had to really wrestle with this in Acts 10, right? Acts 10 and 11. And we want to think very carefully here. It is easy for us, and when I say us here, I'm potentially, I'm, I'm maybe specifically, I should be careful here. I, even though I have had a, a very interesting childhood that's very, and, and an upbringing that's very different from many of you. Nevertheless, I'm a white Canadian. I'd be considered majority culture. And it is, it was not, this is not, isn't in my notes, so I'm kind of being careful here, but it was not until I was in my 20s that I realized I was white. And I've told some of you that story. I was on a bus trip in LA and I just realized, man, I am so white. And um, I, I understood that I had a culture. And, and often when we're in a majority culture, we, we don't recognize that. 
because it's, if you're a fish in water, you don't really notice the water. And so particularly for people who are in a majority culture, it's easy to look at other cultures and point out the futile ways that they might need to leave behind because you actually notice them. And that's not bad. Like I said, missionaries got to think this stuff through really carefully. But, but what about the parts of our culture, if, and even if whatever culture you're in, that we don't notice because it's just a part of the air that we breathe. Are, are we willing to set aside parts, whatever part of our heritage is at odds with the teaching of Jesus? Are we willing to look at our own heritage, the ways we've inherited from our forefathers and call it worthless, call it futile, if it goes against or gets in the way of following Jesus? like Paul, to set aside good things for the sake of the Great Commission, would we sacrifice, here's a a question, would we sacrifice our most treasured family traditions for the sake of love? Perhaps some of these futile ways that Jesus died to save us from are hiding right in plain sight. And that's why we so desperately need the word of God to renew our minds and set us straight. And we so desperately need relationships across cultures, right? We, we, we need people from other cultures to point out the weird spots in our own culture that we need to be willing to say, no, that's actually, I grew up with that. That feels normal to me. That, that's actually futile. Jesus ransomed me from that. I'm not going to hang on to that anymore. Now, up till now, as we've been talking about Jesus ransoming us from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, we focused on some of the challenging parts of this. But can we just stop here for a moment and celebrate the really, really, really good news here? Isn't it good news that Jesus died to save us from the worthless ways we got from our parents and grandparents and, the, and those before? Because isn't it true that without Jesus, sinful ways have, have a way of getting passed on from one generation to the next? I mean, don't we see sometimes whole cultures, whole cities, whole societies being crushed under the weight of the sins of the fathers that just keep getting passed on and keep getting passed on. And some of us here in this room know what some of those sins of our fathers are, fathers and mothers, ways of acting, behaving, conducting ourselves, and, that, and we may have felt in chains to them were it not for the good news that Jesus rescued us from them, ransomed us from them. Jesus set you free from repeating history. Isn't that good news? You don't have to be stuck in the ruts that your forefathers carved out for you. Who the sun set free is free indeed. This is good news. In Christ, you are not doomed to keep on making the same mistakes that your parents and their parents before them made. You've been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Jesus died so you could walk in the freedom of holy fear. And Peter's not done. So far we focus on verse 18, just talking about our ransom and what is ransomed from. And our final stop here is, is in the second half of verse 18, moving into verse 19, where we learn what we were ransomed with. 
Okay, so, so far we focused on what we were ransomed from. Here's what we were ransomed with. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, that's what slaves were bought with in the market. No, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So one of the, one of the ways we can point to what's, what Peter's saying here is that the price you pay for something determines how you treat it. How valuable something is determines how you treat it. I remember learning how to drive in a big old 1986 brown Pontiac Prigienne. I miss that car sometimes. And I was a careful driver because I didn't want to hurt anybody, but honestly, I wasn't too worried about the car. And so I remember once in the McDonald's parking, or the McDonald's drive-thru, I hit the gas instead of the brakes and I scraped those big, those big orange posts. I learned what they were there for that day and I scraped it. I was more worried about the post than the car. That just gives you an idea of, of how tough this car was and, and the shape that it was in. But then there came one day, I had only had my license for a matter of months, and my neighbor handed me the keys to her Lexus and said, can you go return this DVD to Blockbuster for me? Kids, if you don't know what that is, you can ask your parents. I'll never forget getting into the driver's seat of a vehicle much newer, much nicer, much more expensive than our old Pontiac. I knew that the price that had been paid for this Lexus was way more, way more than our old Pontiac. And so as I drove to Blockbuster and back, I conducted myself with fear. I, it was joyful fear because I was, I'm driving a Lexus, this was great. I was 16, it was amazing. And, and, I, and I was so honored that she had trusted me with this. But I drove, I drove as carefully as I'd ever driven. I didn't want to hurt something so valuable. See, see the, the, how valuable, the more valuable something is, the more s that we treat it in a special way. And Peter is telling us that we must conduct ourselves with fear because of the price that was paid for us. Because we were ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold. It says in verse 18, this is the second time Peter's talked about silver and gold that perish. Right, verse 7, same thing. Gold and silver, most precious things, that is the most, that's what everyone wanted. And Peter says, no, they can be destroyed. You've been ransomed with something far more precious. Imagine, imagine meeting someone who had been a slave, literally part of a human trafficking ring. And imagine finding out that they had been rescued in one of these sting operations that go in to rescue people from slavery. And that this person had been ransomed at a price, not of $5,000 or $30,000, but $1 million. Imagine someone telling you that. Yeah, someone, someone came from, paid a million dollars to set me free. H how would you treat that person? I mean, you'd, it'd be pretty special, right? You'd tell other people about your million dollar friend. What about a billion dollars? What about $10 billion? How would you treat someone who had been bought at that kind of price? Now imagine that you were that person. How would you treat yourself? 
freed from slavery at a cost that you could have never paid yourself, how thankful would you be? How carefully would you go through life knowing that even the simple things you enjoy were unfathomably expensive? Now here's the punchline that you knew was coming. If you're in Christ, you are that person. But so much more than that person, you've been ransomed not with mere money, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This picture of an unblemished lamb goes back to, the, to Passover, when Israel was ransomed from Egypt and perfect spotless lambs were sacrificed for them to, to, to pay the price for their freedom. And we know that those lambs and their, perfect, their, their perfection were pointing forward. They were pictures of the real Lamb of God, Jesus, who we don't know if his body was perfect, but we know that he was perfect. The older I get, this is one of the truths about Jesus that I, I, I love, because the older that I get, the more sin I see in myself and in other people, the more heroes I've seen fall, and the more it amazes me that Jesus was perfect. For 33 years, all the temptations, starving to death in the wilderness, and he's perfect. There was never a life like this. There is never a spotless one like, like this man. And on the cross, he offered up his perfect, spotless life to set you free from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross, like we sang earlier. And knowing this, Peter calls us to conduct ourselves with fear. Knowing that you've been paid for at such a price, how can we be casual about sin? How can we be relaxed about holiness? This is right here is one of those truths that I was praying as we begin that the Holy Spirit would help us understand. Because I know there's no words that I can use right now to help give you in your heart a sense of the value that you have because of the infinite price that was paid for you by the Lord Jesus Christ, if, if you've believed in him, if you've been saved by him. So I've prayed that the Holy Spirit would help you to, to taste this. That's what Peter wants, knowing that you were ransomed, because as we know this, we're gonna conduct ourselves with holy fear. Like driving that Lexus, but so much greater and with so much more confidence because we're not alone. The Lord is there with us. We must conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile because we've been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, as I say these words, I've been talking this morning mostly to you who know Christ. If you don't know Jesus this morning, 
you can come to him. You don't have to wonder, am I one of those people he died for? You, you know how you know that is, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you want to come? Do you want to be, do you want him? And all who come to me, I will never cast out, Jesus said. Trust his promises. Embrace his loving authority over your life. Taste the sweetness of knowing you've been bought. It's for you this morning if you will come to Jesus. And if you have come to Jesus, if you do know Jesus, remember, remember the price of blood that stands over your life. Think of that price tag. Imagine walking through a store and picking things up and then seeing a price tag and how great it is and how carefully. That's your life. Everything you enjoy has the price tag of blood on it, the blood of the lamb. Jesus died to buy you and to buy your holiness. He died to buy your life, your behavior, your habits, your possessions. It's all been bought at such a price. And it's so good for us to be turning now from this passage to what's really a continuation of the sermon, which is the Lord's Supper. We're going to remember the death of Christ for us. And here in the Lord's Supper, we hold bread and we hold the cup to remind us of the price that was paid for our ransom. We remind ourselves, this is us putting into practice, verse 18, knowing you were ransomed. This is us helping each other know that we were ransomed. And as we do this, here's, here's, here's what, what should be on our minds today. Jesus ransomed us at the price of his own life, not just to buy our, holy, uh, to buy our forgiveness, but also to buy our holiness. And let's let that awareness walk with us into these days ahead that we might know we were ransomed, we might conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile, waiting for the return of Jesus, whose death we're now going to proclaim until he comes. There's so much more to be said, but like, like we've had to say, P Peter goes on to help us flesh this out even more. And there is, there is so much more help from Peter coming, understanding how this all works and what this looks like. But now let's, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to help us understand and to taste these things that we've just heard. Lord, I thank you that you ransomed your people from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. Not with disposable things like silver and gold, but with the blood, with the very life of the most perfect person, the only perfect person who ever lived. Jesus, you laid down your perfect life for us. And so how can we not want to live to please you? Help us, Lord, this morning to taste the wonder that you bought our holiness. And help us to joyfully live devoted to you. Eager, Jesus, that you receive the reward for your suffering. That reward being us living to please you. 
Help us now, Lord, as we come to your table to remember well, to be shaped again into your image. Amen.